Welcome to Positions, a show on culture and politics. It offers scholarly perspectives on current trends in media, technology, and beyond. We are sponsored by members of the New Media and Digital Culture Working Group of the Cultural Studies Association, and special thanks to showrunner Andrew Culp at CalArts for putting all of this together for us. I am Rebecca Sheldon, Associate Professor of English at Indiana University Bloomington and the author of The Child to Come, Life After the Human Catastrophe. Um, I write and teach about feminist and queer theory, speculative philosophy and speculative fiction. Um, and my current book concerns the relationship between the new realisms, vitalist philosophy and the occult. Our last episode of Positions titled What Counts? Elections, Truth and Power cultural studies professors theorized about the consequences of the recent US election. And unfortunately, so many of their predictions about militarized conflict, conspiracy, and racialized violence have already come true. We invite you to enjoy it and all other episodes on YouTube or as a podcast on all major platforms. Today, our topic is the witch. We have two thinkers joining us to debate the figure of the witch. Their conversation will span religion and history, but will home in on the relevance of the witch in contemporary culture and politics, and in particular, the relationship between witchcraft and feminist thought. Our two conversation partners are Gabriel Salomon Mendel and Sandra Huber. I'm going to introduce them both, and then I'll talk a little bit more about our theme. Sandra Huber is a PhD candidate in interdisciplinary humanities at Concordia University. She focuses on communication with the dead in contemporary witchcraft and ceremonial magic. In her work in general, she is interested in approaching questions concerning the secretive or the occulted through embodied research. She wrote Assembling the Morrow, A Poetics of Sleep from Talon Books in 2014, based on a collaboration with sleep scientists in Lucerne, Switzerland. We also have with us Gabriel Solomon Mendel, uh, an interdisciplinary artist based in Santa Cruz, California, who works in sound, text, visual medium, and socially collaborative forms. He's currently pursuing a PhD in the History of Consciousness Department at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he is researching the relationship between noise, power, and protest. This past fall, he taught a lecture course entitled, What is the Witch? Terror, Subjectivity, Modernity. Our goal today is to consider wh what the witch is doing in contemporary culture and what tracking the figure of the witch might show us about contemporary culture and media practices. From the political rhetoric of the witch hunt to the hexapatriarchy protest placards as black girl magic and good vibes only t-shirts and queer magic uh, uh, buttons and other paraphernalia. <laughs> um, uh, in mainstream music and all over popular television as teen internet subcultures and practicing neo-pagan communities, the Trump years were also the years of the witch. And if we needed any verification of that, even the New York Times back in 2019 asked, when did everybody become a witch? <laughs> so, <laughs> so what if anything does the witch have in its various manifestations have to tell us about the years of political unrest, post-truth conspiracy, resurgent misogyny and ethno-nationalism, social justice activism and utopian longings that we are perhaps leaving, but maybe not. And how might that relate to the longer histories of witchery, histories in which the witch's connection to women was central? In fact, like many other uh, neo-paganisms, the witch is a composite figure, half history and half myth. 
There's the early modern witch trials with their specters of licentious moonlight sabbaths and liaisons with diabolical forces. And it's this kind of witchery that informs our familiar Halloween wicked witch um, and also the witchcraft to which second wave feminists turn in seeking to restore women ways, women's ways of knowing as alternatives to Western science and enlightenment reason. Then there's the witchcraft of Afro-diasporic communities and the promise of oppressed knowledges. There's the witchcraft of the 19th century British occult revival that traced its roots to indigenous matriarchal religions of the British Isles, an underground practice that Gerald Gardner at the turn of the 20th century claimed to have discovered in the New Forest in England. And then there's the history of pseudo-Masonic secret societies, theosophists, Kabbalists, alchemists, and spiritualists that inform Gardner's writings. The witches, therefore, as you can see in these different histories, linked to myth and fabulation and political unrest. But through it all, the witch remains resolutely tied to women and the feminine. In our discussions today, Sandra and Gabriel will take us through their understandings of the witch and a sense of what wi thinking with and against feminist claims on the witch might help us to better see about its contemporary relevance. So I will be the moderator for our discussion. We'll go about uh, around an hour. And maybe we can just open our discussion um, with a brief sort of witch-ish biography from both of you, a little sense uh, of where you come into the conversations about witchcraft and, uh, and your position on these questions that I've opened up. Um, so Gabriel, maybe we can start with you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the witch and what has happened to that interest over time? Sure, it's funny. I was not expecting to have to necessarily decide how much to bring myself out of the broom closet, but I, <laughs> but I'm happy to say that over the last uh, two decades, living in California in the Bay Area, as well as the Pacific Northwest, extending up into uh, the Lower Mainland of British Columbia, um, I've been adjacent to a lot of radical feminist communities for whom the witch has been a very core component, with overlaps into the environmental movement. And um, I was constantly encountering people for whom uh, a sort of spiritual core of their activism was a, an identification with the witch and the sense that the witch gave a history to these um, otherwise marginalized or even often quite hidden social movements, whether it was radical queer politics, radical environmentalism. Uh, and, and so for me, the question of what could the witch do became really important uh, beyond my own personal you know, uh, relationship to some of these histories, including specifically uh, Starhawk and the reclaiming community, which is a very politically active and um, politically focused orientation of North American uh, neo-pagan witchcraft. Beyond that personal relationship with those texts and with those um, individuals, peoples and communities that were involved in reclaiming, I saw in the witch an opportunity to think through problems about relationship to the more than human world. Um, and in particular, I saw it as avenues for addressing um, both the condition of whiteness, which I'll say more about in a moment, and, and settler colonialism. And so just to position myself as uh, someone who's the child of refugees and immigrants uh, of Jewish ancestry, I absolutely you know, experienced my position here in this kind of interstitial space of both racialized, but also having access to white privilege, 
Uh, and I certainly am a uh, settler in North America, even at the same time as experiencing um, you know, a very direct relationship to those histories that drive people from place to place. And so seeing these things as complicated, as not pure binaries, I felt that um, the witch represented a place where people could begin to untangle whiteness, ideally even destroy, abolish whiteness through an exploration of what it means to have um, had relationship to land and relationship to place, however historically um, distant it might seem, and however complicated the and circuitous and problematic the pathways that people arrived at. And at the same time, that that could itself be something that uh, settlers could bring to, um, to the table as, as something you know, they could bring in hand two relationships with indigenous people as they uh, work to reclaim their land, to reclaim their heritage, their uh, culture, their relations to place. And, and so I saw it as an opening, as something that wasn't necessarily um, defined or closed, but a, a sort of a possibility, a figure of possibility. And that led me to want to understand, well, what is the witch and how viable are these political pathways? So just to follow up briefly on that, did you want to say a little bit about um, the question of, of the way that you're positioning the question of sex and gender with regard to the kinds of um, broader political questions you've just raised? Sure. I, I guess what I would just say is I take it, uh, I'd rather I should say I took it for granted that the witch was a feminist figure and that the witch is a kind of um, a figure of radical gender nonconformity, of radical uh, gender resistance. And I took it for granted as a resource for, for feminists and queer feminist social movements uh, and certainly found that as a resource for myself. And then at a certain point, digging into its histories as well as trying to think about how it's emerging in a kind of fourth wave feminist moment mm -hmm. um, and in particular on the internet in a, in a you know, URL focused space, I, I started having questions uh, questions not just about how accurate that claim is, which I'm not necessarily concerned with disabusing, but questions about what are we missing when we only focus on the witch as a gendered subject? Um, what are other histories or legacies of the witch that actually do account for uh, settler colonialism, account for anti-Blackness, um, as well as, as uh, anti-femme, anti-woman, um, you know, politics, histories, violences, and does so in a way that doesn't foreclose relationships to the witch, but actually opens up other kinds of entanglements and uh, those entanglements extending well beyond gender and well beyond the categories of race. And so I, I wanted to see where, it, see where it goes. And I think part of that is abandoning um, a total attachment to the witch as a, as a, as a feminine signifier. Fascinating, thank you. Um, Sandra, do you want to talk a little bit about your, your practice um, and um, how you see the, the connection between um, witchcraft and um, questions about media, mediumship and the feminine? Sure, I mean, I see a lot of um, similar sort of points of connection with what Gabriel was saying, which is super exciting. It's not often, I just have to say, um, you know, in my department of interdisciplinary humanities, it's not often that I come into contact with people who are working so, um, 
you know, with such depth on the figure of the witch. So it's really a pleasure to be here with both of you actually and to talk about this because it's so rare um, I find that that we get to geek out over these things <laughs> um, in such depth that we are today so this is uh, this is exciting. Um, I came to the figure of the witch or to study the witch also like Gabriel um, I have to out myself from the broom closet. Uh, I've been a practitioner of uh, witchcrafts for many years um, and I, I came into witchcraft via mediumship. So both as a practitioner and as someone who just has like a real curiosity about what it means sort of to connect with ancestry, to connect with the dead. And then like you were saying, to try to excavate um, types of knowledge that we can bring into our world that are less built on the sort of who Sylvia Winter calls Mantu or Homo economicus, um, moving away from that figure and moving towards different ways of making knowledge that the witch is very adept in as a practitioner who weaves and spins and who also who unweaves and unspins the, the sort of toxic um, narratives towards progression and development that we've come to adopt. So I really feel that I also see in the practices of the witch ways that we can move forward in the world and yes, ab abolish whiteness, that would be amazing. Um, and, and sort of look at what knowledges have been hidden, what knowledges have been excluded, what methods have been excluded to make way for these dominant methods of progress and development that have in large part harmed our world and harmed the people um, in the world. And I'm very interested, I suppose, in the witch uh, as a fabulated ancestor who holds the knowledges that I would love to peer into. And she, she or they um, teach me how to do that, how to at once unspin and then spin anew. And I'm interested in this as a methodology and also in epistemology as a way to build knowledge. Um, so lots of different places we can go from here just as uh, a sort of set of follow-ups before I introduce some other things for us to think with because you all are such rich thinkers um, that we already have lots of interesting um, terms on the table. Uh, I was, you know, if, if this is where we want to go with it, I was, um, I was interested in maybe asking you both to elaborate and respond to the ways that um, you are putting together um, uh, epistemology, um, uh, modernity, um, settler colonialism, and um, chattel slavery, and um, and the, the sort of fabulated histories of um, of the witch. Those those terms seem to have circulated together, but in a way that maybe we can explicate a little bit more thoroughly. Gabriel, do you want to do you want to begin by <laughs> by talking about the abolishment of whiteness, since that seemed to, well, yeah. I mean, sure. I you know I wanted to toss a. I, I'm to be honest, really excited to hear Sandra's thoughts on that question in particular because um, I right now there is movement and there is a lot of work, maybe not a lot of work, but significant work happening around um, thinking about how the witch as a figure gives us access to other ways of thinking 
about a relationship to to things, to non-human beings, to spirit, to um, other aspects of existence and other other uh, not you know modes of knowing, modes of accessing knowledge that have not been extinguished from the world, but have been uh, suppressed or repressed within you know the kind of great modern Enlightenment project and um, and so. Uh, since I'm talking, I'll, I'll just say my piece, but I, I actually think uh, Sandra's work really is engaging in, in those questions in really exciting ways. So I'm curious to hear what, what she has to say. I, I would say that for me, when I, I think about why the witch is such a relevant figure in this media moment, for example, one of the reasons is because of the way in which uh, Trump and Trump world has just exploded truth and exploded um, the assumptions, the liberal assumptions at least, about how we access knowledge, how we um, exist within a consensus or hegemonic uh, field of knowledge. And as much damage as that's done, I think it's also opened up possibilities for talking seriously about the ways in which people live in multivalent way, uh, worlds, that, that people live in simultaneous experiences of of the real, of truth, of, of knowledge that are um, certainly potentially in conflict, but aren't necessarily incompatible either. And that is something that indigenous people, that um, you know, people uh, who have experienced uh, the crisis of colonialism and the imposition of certain sets of, of, of values, certain knowledges, um, have already been navigating for a long time. The, you know, the tunis of existence that uh, in some ways Du Bois alluded to that, and that Gilroy has explored and many other people have talked about. Um, and that this, this sort of dominant hegemonic idea of how we know things, who is entitled to truth, um, where truth is, is located is something that uh, has generally served the purposes of, of power. And that power has been located in various institutions, including um, the Western Academy. And so rather than only fight against being in a post-truth moment, I wanted to think through what it means to lean into the freedoms that might be allowed um, and the possibilities for actually undoing that kind of monohumanism, to borrow another phrase from Sylvia Winter, uh, that has dominated our, our lives, our discourse, our, our histories. Um, the witch is a useful figure for that, if not for no other reason than because there is no simple consensus about who the witch was. You know, was the witch a real person? Was the witch uh, the person they claimed to be, given that those claims came through uh, torture-induced confession and were recorded by their persecutors and by, you know, men of power? Um, you know, were, did they believe what they said that they did? Does it even matter? Because the consequences and the effects of what they said they did had other effects for our society at the level of law, at the level of the family, at the level of uh, economy. And, and so I, I think it's actually useful to think about what moving beyond a singular notion of truth does for letting us uh, live alongside each other in ways that allow for multiple things to be true at the same time, or allow for multiple ways of knowing, multiple um, ontological frames to exist. Uh, maybe that's just a sort of metaphysical multiculturalism, but I, I actually think there is important political work potentially there. 
Andrew, did you want to respond to that? Yeah, I love that. There's so much that I love about what you said. I really love this phrase also, uh, multivalent worlds. Mm -hmm. And I think this encapsulates so much about what the witch is. Um, and, you know, your question of like, who is the witch is such a rich one because it takes us into so many different places simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So there's the witch, like just in terms of talking about, um, you know, staying on our theme that we seem to have opened of mass uh, colonization, there is the witch, uh, for example, in Federici's Caliban and the witch, mm -hmm. who I think is very inspirational to a lot of fourth generation, mm -hmm. more political leaning witches, let's say. Um, and that's the witch who was really, you know, hunted, tortured, legally put to death um, in, you know, roughly from 1580 to 1630, uh, mostly in Europe, some uh, little pockets in North America. But there's that witch that was taking place at the same time, uh, and this is something that Federici points out, as, you know, um, the transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. as the colonization of the so-called new world. Mm -hmm. So these were subjects that needed to be put to death in order for a transition, Federici argues, from feudalism to capitalism to take place. Um, and in order also for the scientific revolution to take place and to institutionalize knowledge. So, you know, a knowledge base, to institutionalize a knowledge base that drives healers away from their home altars and makes it so that they need to have a certificate in order to practice health, etc. So you have all of these, um, you know, types of making knowledge and types of healing especially healing, I think, is a huge um, theme of witchcraft and also where it ties into politics that were really being, uh, that were really being persecuted at that time. And I think it's largely, you know, the work, Starhawk did a lot of work uh, in, in 1979, putting out Dreaming the Dark and really uh, going back to what she called the burning times, which is the times that I just described and really sort of excavating this, this witch, this particular witch of um, the historical early modern witch trials, sort of reviving that witch as part of her neo-pagan tradition. And so from this, then you have a lot of political movements emerging, such as um, WITCH, which is the Women's International Conspiracy from Hell, uh, which was born, I think, on Halloween in 1968 and who did a lot of work, like they were like hexing Wall Street. And you could see this also in the Trump administration where there was this widespread uh, sort of trend of hexing Trump. Uh, Lou Cornyn has a really good essay on this in the New Inquiry where they say called white, I think it's called either white magic or white witches, where they say that the problem with white witches is that they hex Trump, but they don't actually align themselves with the history of the heathen. So there's this huge, um, you know, wave of witches buying crystals from urban outfitters, for example, and hexing Trump, which comes in part from, from this, you know, radical legacy of, um, of the women's international conspiracy from hell, but is so, sort of fully subsumed within capitalism. And I think that there is now, right now, a call then for, which is to sort of, uh, to sort of relook maybe uh, at the roots of where witches come from, uh, and to sort of re-examine the types of, of knowledge and the types of radical politics that are not defanged 
from the history of the so-called heathen or the history of the imbrication of the persecution of witches with massive colonization. So I really think there's an exciting call for that right now. Um, and on the other side of that, the witch is so much part of our popular culture, as you were saying, sort of post-Trump or during Trump. I don't even know where we where we are in the, in the Trump timeline of history. Um, that there is there was this massive resurgence of the witch, but it was also I think it's interesting to address how it's also so problematically tied with um, with the image of the witch as like this crystal sporting, uh, you know people have massively appropriated the pentagram also, which I'm, I'm on the borderline of, of finding that strange. Um, but yeah, I think that there's sort of a, a reckoning that needs to, to happen uh, within you know, the figure of the witch and the study of who the witch is and where we wanna go also uh, with the witch's history um, into creating new futures. Um, it's such a pleasure to listen to you both make meaning this way. Um, I uh, I want to just um, continue a line of thought that that we have begun um, to explore together um, about the contemporary relevance of the witch and pick up on what you both were saying about the way uh, from Federici, I think at least in part about the way that the the figure of the witch marks or indexes a particular kind of. Um, uh, transformation, epistemological transformation, historical transformation from one great episteme to another. Um, so the, um, Sandra, you were talking about the, the way that the witch persecutions for Federici track with the establishment of, of uh, the closure of the commons, the establishment of capitalism, the, um, the transatlantic slave trade, the scientific revolution, right? All of these sorts of um, new formations um, emerging in part be, uh, from those, um, from the persecution of, of the witch. Um, and we should also add in just as a note, also um, vagrancy laws. So the criminali yeah. criminalization of the poor, I think is also really, uh, really essential to this. Sorry, go on. No, no. And prostitution is a part of that story as well, if I remember correctly from um, Caliban and the witch. Yeah. Um, uh, so I wonder though, if we can uh, say um, uh, speculatively, what is, if what we're seeing right now is, this, is a similar kind of transformation. Um, and you know, to pick up on what Gabriel was saying, if that kind of transformation um, uh, offers us a, a sort of, um, on the one hand, an account of power, a pretty radical account of power um, as moving through the, the ability to, um, to claim uh, rationality, truth, um, the right to speech. Um, and, uh, but on the other hand, the way that that kind of, um, you know, I'm really struck by the, the use of conspiracy in which, right? The, um, the way that conspiracy emerges now as a kind of, um, uh, 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 <laughs> a sort of sense that uh, we don't have a, 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 um, a stable public life. We don't have a stable claim on um, policymaking, for example, because there isn't a, a kind of consensus about what counts as scientific method. So, um, you know, all of these things being um, uh, further uh, uh, um, exacerbated by COVID-19, right? Um, and um, uh, and anti-mask. Um, uh, 
political movements. So, you know, it's, it's, there's an antagonism happening right now that is happening along the sort of seam introduced by, um, by fabulation. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how that, what, what is this new epistem, if there is an epistem emerging, um, how should we think about it? Um, and uh, does it seem, does it seem new or does it seem to take part in those longer histories that you were both talking about um, from the 60s, from the occult revival of the turn of the 20th century? Like when do we, when do we start parsing that particular transformation? You know, it, it's interesting. There's a, a educator and activist uh, named Rain Crow who is also part of the reclaiming community. And uh, she, taught a series of classes some years back called The Burning Times Never Ended. And being very involved in the environmental movement in the Pacific Northwest, she was thinking very much about the Green Scare, which for anyone who's not familiar with it is um, a period of time when anti-terror laws uh, in the United States were directed primarily against uh, people who were doing property destruction um, in service of, of trying to, in their view, defend the earth, defend animals. Um, and this was the highest priority of domestic law enforcement for most of the 2000s. And um, at its core, what law enforcement was trying to do was, was, um, was figure what was actually a very popular and broad-based movement for uh, environmental justice, for um, justice for animals and animal rights, and focus it into a form of conspiracy and one that um, you know was was treated as as fundamentally deadly, and and we can talk about violence in this context. But they were treated as deadly, even though primarily what they were doing was uh, damaging property and and trying to attack um, the kind of capitalistic concerns that were driving uh, environmental destruction and the mass um, harm of harming of animals. So that class got me thinking years back about this question of well what. What has changed since Federici's time, that Federici is covering, right? And we could say from a perspective that views the witch as a kind of gender nonconforming feminist figure that the persecution of women, the domination of um, women and, and femme folks, um, you know, especially is embodied in anti-trans violence, um, you know, and all the ways in which it manifests in the most recent um, kind of opening up of conversation about Me Too, Gamergate. I mean, we could we could say, well, the witch lives with us in this form, in the way in which um, you know non-men um, are are treated as inherently uh, harmable, inherently killable, inherently violatable, and I don't think that that's untrue, but as I was preparing to teach this course in the fall, what kept on emerging for me was um, there are these other synchronicities, there's these other simultaneities of the witch of history that are continuing into the present. And they don't just continue into the present as a kind of um, spontaneous reappearance, but as a, a sequence of uh, manifestations. Or, so there's almost like a temporality of the witch that has not ever gone away. And where it kept on showing up for me wasn't just in the kind of violence and persecution of, um, you know, of, of femme folks, of, of women and gender nonconforming people. It was actually in the conspiracy itself. And I thought a lot about WITCH and the fact that 
they were, you know, we think of them as the origin of a kind of modern or contemporary American witch uh, because we focus on the idea that it was a group of women coming together to protest, to um, perform these, this kind of uh, public magic against capitalism. But they identified as a conspiracy and it's that conspiracy that kept on surfacing for me. Um, just the other day I was listening to Kevin Roos, who's a, a New York Times reporter, kind of give a pithy shorthand definition of QAnon. And I, I wrote it down because I knew I'd forget it, but he, he describes it as um, basically a, a sort of a theory that says that um, the world is controlled by a couple of world elite cannibal pedophiles. And I'm assuming at this point with everything that's happened at the Capitol that most of our listeners have at least that much vague awareness of QAnon and the theories that are driving it. But what I was struck by over the course of last year as I was preparing my course is how rather than um, seeing it in these kind of strong feminist figures that were emerging in modes of protests, it was actually in the ways in which the QAnon conspiracy specifically, but, but also the kind of right-wing media um, description of groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa were actually inhabiting this witch conspiracy which um, is almost identical, is almost completely to the word identical if we talk about it historically. You know, it is diabolic, it is sexually deviant, um, it is incestuous, it is pedophilic, it has orgies, it worships um, the devil in some kind of animal form, and, and, it's not, it, and it's not explicitly just feminine. It includes, um, you know, male uh, participants as well. And so I think in a way, what I want us to maybe do with, with the witch is to think about how this antisocial conspiracy might actually give us a different key for accessing a history of resistance against state power, resistance against criminalization. Because once we start looking for the conspiracy, we can find it in indigenous uprisings, we can find it in um, the persecution of the Central Park Five, we can find it in Guantanamo Bay, um, you know, we can find it in slave insurrections. And then that for me is another political possibility that is un, um, unexplored when we focus just on the gendered aspect of witch persecution. Uh, and something that I think is implicit in, in Federici's book, but doesn't, um, doesn't get picked up in the same way as the ways in which she articulates how gendered violence uh, undermines solidarity among peasant people and working class people in the transition to capitalism. Can I just briefly follow up before I let Sandra talk um, uh, to that provocation, Gabriel? Um, because part of what, it, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying here. I think what I heard you saying is that um, while it's a, a sort of easy uh, to refer to QAnon itself as a kind of conspiracy movement, um, and in fact, you know, popularly associated um, with the resurgence or resurgence of conspiracy in the contemporary, mm -hmm. that in fact QAnon's own um, principal uh, figure of villainy is uh, is is itself uh, um, most uh, most resembles the claims against um, early modern witchcraft. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, and and that's um, probably the most complicated, emotionally complicated part of this line of thinking that I've been pursuing. Because when we start looking for the figure of the conspiracy, 
it, we aren't able to valorize the witch. We aren't able to treat the witch as exclusively belonging to uh, historically oppressed, historically marginalized groups that we uh, would identify with. You know, mm -hmm. what happens is we start say, seeing that it has its own, it's almost a structuralist argument. It has its own form um, that emerges irregardless of the, the kind of affiliation or, or affinity that we feel towards those figures. And so in the QAnon conspiracy, on the one hand, you know, there, we could, I, I can imagine many of us might be more sympathetic to um, the way that Black Lives Matter has been figured as a kind of uh, witch conspiracy, right? And, and if you actually look online and, and read certain um, evangelical right-wing media spaces, they're very explicit about identifying the way in which um, traditional uh, diasporic religions have, have um, come up in Black Lives Matter discourse and pointing to that as a sign that in fact it is a witch cult itself. Um, but even without the, the supernatural aspects or the metaphysical aspects, the way that um, anti-fascists have been framed as this sort of occult group, and I mean that in more of a, a literal sense, you know, a hidden group that um, traverses the world and is on airplanes arriving to burn down people's um, homes is starting fires in Oregon. Um, you know, the, the conspiracy is not just irrational, but it's it has this character of um, identifying a kind of occulted group that is collaboratively organizing in an explicitly antisocial way. But with QAnon, what's complicated is that that is um, in some ways scaled up at socially to the level of being government Hollywood, um, you know, the at this point for some people, every aspect of society that is institutional is in on this conspiracy. And so, um, you know, while we could think of QAnon itself as a form of conspiracy, what I'm saying is that um, that actually the map the the map that they're using, the pattern that they're using to articulate a, a kind of antisocial enemy, is embedded in a long long history of the witch, but also anti-Jewishness, anti-heretical theories, anti-Christian ideas from the medieval period and uh, late Roman period. So it's, it's, it's more politically complicated than we maybe would like. And it means that at certain moments, um, certain figures actually are embodying the figure of the witch, even if we have no sympathy for them. And even if it's incongruous with many other ways that we identify the witch. And, and just to follow up on that, and, and even if the way that we, um, the way that they figure their own enemies is, is embodies that that sort of um, witch conspiracy, even as they themselves then are subject to being called a, a, a conspiracy in the in the in the model of the witch, right? So there's no, it's a reversible discourse. There's no moment at which um, uh, anyone is claiming a kind of um, middle ground of liberal humanism in this conversation, right? Yeah, I. So, um, yeah, uh, Sandra, did you want to respond to? I mean, I think there's a lot of things there to respond to. I think, uh, you know, the witch has not always been, um, I think this brings it into the realm of the witch and trickery, which mm -hmm. I find really fascinating. And also the part of witch that is craft. So the craft part of witchcraft, which I think has a lot to do with fabulation. Um, which conspiracy definitely leads into. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
this makes me think of so many different things. And I love hearing you talk about this. And I just, I love conspiracies in general. I think that they're fascinating. And I think that they're sort of like a double-edged sword. So there's the conspiracies that are deployed against us and there's the conspiracies that we deploy. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, my favorite definition of the witch is, I don't know if you've read the author, Peter Gray, mm -hmm. who wrote Apocalyptic Witchcraft. He says that you will find the witch at the end of a pointed finger. <laughs> And to me, that is my favorite definition because it, it talks about both the fact that you will find the witch as the person who's being pointed to, mm -hmm. pointed to at the end of a conspiracy, for example. The witch is being pointed to and persecuted. But there's another sort of entendre of that phrase where the witch is the one who has the will to point towards their desires. Mm -hmm. So the witch, which to me, the witch, the witch, um, is very much about crafting and about fabulating. Um, and I love that uh, you were talking also about um, sort of capital M man somewhere in that. And I think that the witch has a lot to do just in terms of sort of bringing it back to the body and the embodiment of the witch as perhaps a gendered or non-gendered figure with reproducibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and how, and, and sort of this, this idea of, um, of creating a subject who's mimetically developed on the capital M man and then decreating that subject. And the witch as the one who's pointed to as the villain, I think stands in the power of the villain as having the power then to de-weave herself from capital M man. And this has a lot to do with reproduction, which uh, some may see as connected to the female body is not necessarily, witches have always been involved um, in, in conspiracies of reproduction, you know, uh, such as drinking the blood of babies. Uh, so there, and also being involved, say, if you think of spiritualists as a, as a kind of witch in um, non-reproductive fluids, such as ectoplasm. So I think that the witch as this villain who exists in uh, this, this craft of unweaving capital M man can really sort of, um, do a lot of work in that place in terms of what witchcraft is, what the craft part of witchcraft is, and how we can then see conspiracies as kind of a trick of the witch and a craft of the witch that she's both embroiled in, but that she can also deploy and use, or they can also deploy and use. Um, and I sort of love the fact that this, this also ties in, I think, with your work, Rebecca, on the child, right? On like, what is it then that the witch creates and uncreates? Uh, and what is sort of the futurity that comes from the figuration of the witch is one who's both embroiled in conspiracy, both pointed at, but also has the, um, the will and the desire to point outwards and to create, to weave something new. Um, and I think that, you know, it's all about where we place our attention. So yes, we can place our attention on the QAnon quote unquote shaman or however people want it. You know, that's just like such a horrible way to use the word shaman is to call someone, um, that person, a shaman, but, uh, you know, we can place our attention on that, or we can sort of place our attention on like, well, what kinds of futurities then can come about from this conflation? And the witch as this figure who is very much uh, taken up by all sides of the political spectrum, uh, what, what is that figure then doing? Uh, and how can we sort of, you know, move with this figure? Uh, into different different crafts, different ways of crafting and fabulating the world. 
if I may, I just want to say, Sandra, that, that really aligns with a central um, point I was trying to make when I taught my class, which was titled, What is the Witch? And the, and the answer is not, um, it's not what the witch is, it's what the witch does. And that, that it was, so it was a trick question in, in, the, in the class title itself. And I think that what you're saying is right, that we have more access to the power of the witch as a figure, as a, as a community, as, as real people, when we think about what the witch does, as opposed to trying to answer what the witch is, given that the witch is such a multitude, you know, just such a multitude of, of, of beings, of entities, of, of experiences, of, of histories and stories. For sure. And I think it's it's like such a pleasure to get to talk with you two about this because I'm so like hungry to know what you think <laughs> about like about the different things that the witch that you you know that what what do you think the witch is capable of then? Um, what kind of world can we create by working with the epistemologies of the witch, by working with the crafting of the witch? Um, you know, what's what can be undone and what can be worked towards? One of the things that um, Gabriel, um, your account of, uh, well, I mean, both of you building this account of the witch is being pointed at, um, but then pointing away, has helped me to see in my own thinking about these questions, um, is the, um, the, the role of paranoia here, mm -hmm. right? That um, conspiracy and paranoia um, seem like importantly related terms, right? So on the one hand, though conspiracy points to a kind of alter sociality, a, a kind of um, a, a way of, of generating um, affiliation and affinity amongst a group and defining that group um, uh, in a sort of utopian manner, both against and within, right? Against the broader society, but within that society as a kind of movement toward a new futurity. At the same time, um, the relation of, of conspiracy to paranoia almost seems like a kind of, um, uh, a tamping down of that alter sociality, right? A tamping down of that impulse, because paranoia is, uh, and its related its related term exposure <laughs> is so reliant on the production of a singular truth through the um, generation of affect, mm -hmm. right? Paranoia as a feeling is contagious, mm -hmm. and it's it takes it, it's as its rhetorical mode um, the exposure of truth, mm -hmm. um, and I think you know contemporary politics really demonstrate this pretty um, dramatically the way that, that um, those two things get aligned, that ultra-sociality um, that is fabulative, that is clearly fabulative, right, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the, the um, demand for and belief in a kind of um, a truth that can be exposed and whose exposure will then be um, activating, right? Um, and I'd never understood how those things went together. I mean, it's, it just seemed mysterious to me why it is that, that um, uh, that something like QAnon would so clearly work on the model of emotion and on the other hand be so invested in fabulation and aesthetic warfare and yet take as its as its um, uh, sort of charge the exposure of truth mm -hmm. right and thinking about like Pizzagate just as a, as an, as a simple example um, and so what you both have have built here really has helped me to see that that's a kind of um, deflection Right, a deflection of that possibility of counter sociality, of alter sociality. Mm -hmm. um, so um, incorporating the, the modes and, um, and forms um, uh, of that pointing toward what we desire, the unweaving that Sandra was so beautifully talking about um, in order to, to weave it back into um, standard notions of truth, right? Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> 
wonder as we um, as sort of merge into our second hour together, um, if uh, you all can talk a little bit about how teaching has worked for you. So um, I know Gabriel, you taught a class uh, last semester, Sandra, you've also been teaching on the subject, right? How do the students respond to these figures and these suggestions? Sandra, do you care to start? Sure, I mean, I taught uh, a class called Witches, Media, Magic, and Culture. It was an interdisciplinary class between religious studies and gender studies. I'm a PhD candidate, so this was part of a, it was part of an initiative actually through the Simone de Beauvoir Institute um, uh, put together by Vivian Namaste to explore interdisciplinarity in teaching. And so I proposed this course and it was accepted and I got to teach this dream course. Uh, it was capped at 30 students. So it was a pretty nice size class as well. Um, and on the topic of gender, it was entirely uh, women and non-binary people in the class. There was not one man in my class, which was a shame, but that's how it went. Um, and that's what it was. But yeah, it was, it was a, it was an amazing experience. I think one of the most interesting things about it, and I think Gabriel, you had a, a similar assignment was that uh, I asked the students on the first class to go home and call their grandmothers or a non-traumatic elder, um, you know, who they want, someone they want to speak with uh, about who, who that person thinks the witch is. So who, who is the witch? Coming back to your question, Gabriel also, of, who is the witch ultimately does lead into what the witch does. And it was fascinating to see, um, to see the answers come back into the room. And then I had them boil down what their elder said into one word and to write that word on the blackboard, which is this was the time when we could actually be in the same room as our students. <laughs> um, and so everybody went down and wrote, you know, a word on the blackboard of what their, uh, what their grandmother thought the witch was and it was just this beautiful sort of collocation of um, everything from like villain to uh, to snakes like all these non-human figurations of what the witch is also and all these myths about the evil eye um, and all this lore in the family also about healing and just like all this drama also even just that simple question caused uh, with grandmothers was it was quite fascinating and it sort of wove through our semester together in thinking through who the witch is and, and what she does. And I think part of that that was so exciting for me is that the witch is always about ancestral knowledge and ancestral, not just, you know, there's different kinds of ancestral. There's the ancestors that were related to in blood. There's the ancestors that were also related to in different ways, like um, the non-human ancestors that we have as well. And I think a part of sort of seeing who the witch is and what the witch does really pointed to that ancestry for all of us as a class as well. Which points like as scholars also like who, who are our ancestors who we want to be in dialogue with as philosophers, as scholars. I think the witch opens up this huge tradition of um, who, who is not only like, who am I not only facing, but who is behind me? Who is in my root system? Um, who is in the underground spaces? And then how do I access these spaces? And the class was in large part about going into those underground uh, root systems of 
on one hand our ancestry and on the other hand of knowledges that may not be you know um uh, super dominant in the in the university system and going into those spaces and also bringing in guest speakers. So I brought in um, a witch who works as a chaplain for the men's prison and goes in and works with self-identifying witches. And he came in and told, he, he simply actually just came in and told stories. He did some storytelling. Um, um, we had a witch in who's also a scientist. So there is, yeah, different intersections between witchy knowledges and ancestry and sort of weaving our own grimoires uh, through that experience. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's some interesting parallels between our classes, which is not incredibly surprising, especially after this conversation. Uh, but there were some differences. It was a lecture course. Uh, it was about 120 plus students. It was on Zoom. Uh, it was this past fall. And at the moment, the University of California has basically no in-person education. Um, and when I first imagined this class, I had imagined it being a lecture class, one that would draw in a lot of people because it was topical, because it would um, appeal to people who might not otherwise be interested in a class that is essentially a, a kind of philosophy, political theory, critical race and ethnic studies class. Um, and when it transitioned to being on Zoom, I, I had to pivot, of course we all did, but it, it was difficult because to me, and I think to you as well, Sandra, the witch is such a an embodied figure and it is a, um, a worldly figure. It is a it is a, a figure that that exists not just in the mind, but in in relationship to the world, and I mean the non-human world as much as anything. And so it was a it was a bit of a it was a bit of transition to have to think about what it looked like to teach a class where, you know, where at best gesticulating was going to be you know firing off some mimetic synapses and minds, but otherwise, you know, how do I allow, give access to people? Um, to an embodied learning experience? How do, I, um, how do I navigate not being in the room and being able to feel what is happening for people, whether there's tension, whether something is alive in the room that needs to be talked to or spoken to. Uh, that being said, I, I just simply took for granted a diversity of reasons that students would be there and tried really hard to meet them where I anticipated they'd be. And so un unlike you, I had a, a you know, a class that had a very wide uh, gender spectrum. There was a lot of trans and gender queer students, but there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of male identifying students who were really engaged and excited to be there. Um, it was a very multiracial class. Um, there were, you know, I, and I got, went in knowing that there were gonna be people who were indigenous and who were Latinx and who uh, were African, uh, black or, you know, Caribbean ancestry. and. And, and wanting to make sure that the class um, really attended to their experience and to their complicated relationship with what is a Eurocentric conception of um, Earth-based spirituality, one that is treated as novel or, or taboo in a kind of uh, Eurocentric context, but it just simply isn't the same um, tension for people who have different ancestral backgrounds. And, um, and also it was a general education class where I knew students would take it because of, of the title and we're just trying to fulfill their interpreting media um, GE. So I also assumed that there would be a lot of 
of STEM students. And so what I, I got was a very disproportionate number of students who were interested in gender and sexuality and who were already, you know, kind of um, in for the witch. They had, they didn't need any explanation. They had their own ideas. They, they, you know, love hocus pocus. They, um, you know, were, were on TikTok, uh, uh, on the witches of TikTok um, circuit. Like they they were there for that. But there was also students that I assumed were coming in who had never been told that science is a story before, right? Who had never been told that science is one way of knowing, but not the only way of knowing. And, and so I, I tried to construct a class that would bring people along mostly through storytelling. Um, so rather than, as, rather than doing more participatory uh, kind of educational and pedagogical practices that I expected to do in person, I ended up in a way treating my lectures really as, as a way of telling a story. They were thematically guided by different concerns or interests. And they always connected with a moment, a specific moment in history and a specific contemporary or a relatively recent moment and try to give people access to how they could um, see a connecting line. Not if not a straight line, always a, a curved line, but a connecting line um, from histories of the witch to histories of the present. And, um, and what I was fascinated by was, so we taught Federici and they, all of them responded, uh, you know, more than I could have anticipated to that book. It's a great book, but also they had never encountered those stories before. Um, I also, you know, tried to give them real history of, um, you know, histories of Haiti, histories of indigenous uprisings in the, you know, Yucatan and, um, you know, give them access to stories that could inform the present moment as in as many ways as I, I knew how. And, uh, and I, I think it was, I think it was in some ways a class that was more about how we tell stories, whether we call that story history or theater or film um, or social media, but it was, a, it was a class about how we tell stories and how to navigate a multiplicity of stories that may not all line up, that may actually contradict. Um, and how to understand our present moment through the lens of those, even our present moment itself in some ways just being another story that we have to, have to be critical of and have to think about and, and make choices around. We are um, uh, getting toward the end of our time together, but um, I wanted to ask you one more question before um, uh, we leave. And I also wanted to give you an opportunity if you wanted to take it to risk to pick up on any of the threads that we have left dangling. This has been not unexpectedly a generative conversation, um, much more than it has been um, a debate-like conversation. So I'm not sure that we have conclusions that um, that uh, we we can uh, we can articulate exactly. Um, though, but I want to give you the space to to um, to talk through anything that seems um, pressing to you. Um, but I also just want to ask, uh, you know, both of you are in the process of writing dissertations, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, so I'm curious about where you see uh, the, the work of thinking about witchcraft, magic, and the occult happening or esotericism happening um, in um, uh, th the theoretical humanities, whether you see this, like, I, I'm curious actually just about whether or not 
it has been easy for you to make the case for your own work. Mm -hmm. And I say that um, partially autobiographically because I had wanted to do a, a, a project on magic and fantasy fiction when I was a dissertation student and was told emphatically that there was no possibility that that <laughs> would, um, had a discourse to be a part of or would, um, would be legible or recognizable within the broader um, disciplinary conversations that were happening at the time. That seems um, less true now, uh, but I wonder if that's your experience and, and where you see these kinds of conversations happening, if they are happening or going, if you see them happening in the future. Maybe I'll just start by saying, you know, I think both Sandra and I are in interdisciplinary programs. Um, the, the, what I'll say for myself is that the history of consciousness uh, kind of, leans into heretical thought and at its best is asking if or demanding of its students and of it of its um, research that that we move towards the the kind of conjoining of, of ideas that have historically been seen as uh, incommensurable right and so um, this is one of the reasons why historically it has been such an important place for feminist science studies um, for decolonial studies, um, you know, for for the study of, of uh, you know, the study of histories of histories, and and um, you know, the kind of interrogation of the the norms of these different um, formations, disciplinary formations. So, to a certain extent, uh, you know, to a certain extent, we're allowed to be a bit more feral in this program than I think a lot of other grad students would be. Part of that is your entrust, and people in this program were willing to trust me that this class, um, you know, would be a serious class and would do something, uh, would do something that that belonged in the trajectory and the tradition of uh, of, of the history of consciousness department. Um, that said, you know, the sacrifice is how do I explain to someone that I'm doing a dissertation on noise and its relationships to power and politics. But I've also been teaching a class and have this other line of research that is the history of the witch and its relationship to politics and, and protest. Um, you know, the legibility of interdisciplinary study, when we think about it in terms of the job market, is, is uh, a burden that interdisciplinary grad students face. And the only thing I can hope is that the kind of promiscuity of thought is seen as an asset. Um, and that it, what is legible in it, which is a taking seriously of the potentialities of multidisciplinary um, thought of, of bringing, you know, critical theories of race and gender and class into any subject, whether it's uh, sound studies or, um, you know, the study of esoterica and occultism uh, is, is, is its value, you know, is the purpose of interdisciplinary study not to become an expert in a, a sort of container of ideas, but to become a, an expert in a method of interrogating um, any, any object that you turn to. And so at its best, I think that that's what it's, it's preparing us for. And I, um, you know, that, that liberty, at least for the duration of my graduate studies, has been great. We'll see how people understand it or uh, reckon with it when I'm also trying to convince them that I, I belong in their faculty. That's another story. Well, Did I answer your question properly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, 
final thoughts or places that we haven't picked up on that you would like to go? I think just to respond to what Gabriel was saying, which, which is, you know, very real, um, the, you know, we're both graduate students and we're both doing um, really, as you said, heretical um, thinking, which I think is so exciting. Um, it, is, it is interesting to see that, uh, that we've both chosen to do this in interdisciplinary programs but also I think it's indicative of the institution changing. And I think it has to, mm -hmm. like, I think we need to tear it all down. And I'm really in quite in earnest when I say that. I really think that we need to change what literacy is in the institution, because we are, you know, as academics, as scholars, we are part of a very harmful institution, an institution that was built up of values that go against the witch. So when people don't like my research who are part of that institution, I do not blame them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think like it's, it's anti, what we're doing is in a way antithetical to the institution that we're trying to, um, trying to put ourselves forward into. So I think that the work, the heretical work that we're doing, which I think is a, such a beautiful way to describe it, or the feral uh, thinking that we're engaging in, to use another one of your phrases, Gabriel, is, is really, a part of a movement that might be heading towards a different way of putting the institutions together. And here I'm thinking about, say, like the Black Mountain School, you know, a school of witchy methodologies would be um, my ideal place to find myself. Where I'm going to be, like, in terms of the institution, I'm not sure. Uh, but I really do think that this is, like you were saying, this is a method that we're learning. And I think the method we're learning is also a way of unlearning. And I think no matter where we you know, fit into the institution, I think that the work that witchy scholars are going to be doing is really the work that kind of tears it all down in a way. Um, and that sort of reorganizes how education works because if we really want to think meaningfully with the witch, we have to stop thinking of the witch as purely a concept and actually enter into the methods of the witch. Mm -hmm. which uh, leads us into methods that, you know, aren't exactly uh, condoned within the university, within the institution. So I think it's an incredibly brave step to take. And I also think it's aligned with people who are doing significant decolonial work right now in, in, in the institution mm -hmm. as well. Um, I think we're definitely aligned with trans scholars, with black scholars, with indigenous scholars who do want to, you know, still want to, um, these scholars still want to, you know, think with the scholarly tradition, but also, on the other hand, want to incorporate um, these other methods of thought. And I think that's such a tricky interstice to navigate. But at the same time, it's it's exciting, but it's 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 very risky. And I think that we're, um, you know, going to have to be contending with that one way or another. But that the university system, I think, is going to have to contend with that regardless with the way that things are going. Statues are literally being ripped down. And I see that as synonymous with witch work. Um, I see that, you know, whatever way we're gonna be facing into the institution is, is going to be de-institutionalizing to some extent. Um, and that's at once really scary <laughs> to go into, uh, but, you know, hopefully, um, 
hopefully we're not alone in that. And hopefully that's sort of the wave of how things are, are going to be going forward, at least in interdisciplinary uh, work from here on. I really wanna just add one last thing to that, which is um, Peter Gray's at the end of every pointed finger is the witch line is in many ways a kind of update or a, a, a extrapolation of something that Starhawk said, which is where there's fear, there's power. And Starhawk was thinking about that in terms of personal transformation, in terms of political organizing and, and social movements. Um, but also really it is as good a definition of uh, how, to, how to deal with the realities of the witch as a figure. Um, and I think my interest in the witch is really driven by this question of, well, where is their fear and what is the power there? And on the one hand, um, you know, I am afraid of the powers of certain institutional entities, but those institutional entities are also afraid of other kinds of powers. And um, so where there's fear, where there is an expression of fear or a feeling of fear, um, there's a place where transformation is possible. And so where the university is afraid to go is probably where scholars should be headed because there's power there. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so beautiful and so galvanizing. Well, and speaking of um, stealing into the university to plunder its resources, to quote Fred Moten, we've been here um, using our institutional Zoom links to have this alter conspiratorial, alter sociality sort of conversation um, in what I hope was a making, a witchy making um, of, um, of, of, of love and intimacy and vulnerability and shared space. So thank you for um, doing this with me. And thank you to Andrew for his work putting it together. Um, and I, I think we have a wrap. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye, y'all.